This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Andrea Dukakis in for Ryan Warner. Two recent cases of domestic violence in Colorado have received national attention, but there are dozens of other cases that don't get much notice. Elise Schmelzer first reported about this for the Denver Post. She joins us now. Welcome, Elise. Good morning. And Dora Lee Larson is the executive director of the Denver Domestic Violence Coordinating Council. Hi, Dora Lee. Good morning. How are you? Just fine. Elise, what prompted your article? So in the newsroom, you know, we had covered the the case of Shanann Watts and Kelsey Barris, as well as a number of other um, homicides and, and disappearances. These and are victims of I domestic was, violence. Um, sure. Right. Um, and so I started with the question, you know, how many other people are there who had been killed in domestic violence situations or were suspected to be killed in domestic violence situations? I started there. That number wasn't easy to find, um, unfortunately. And that kind of prompted me to ask myself the question, why don't we know about these other folks? You know, why, why don't we know their stories as much as we know about um, Shanann and her daughters uh, and Kelsey Barrett? And so that's kind of what prompted my reporting. And what did you find overall? Overall, you know, the experts that that I talked to, um, we have academics, people who work in advocacy for domestic violence, you know, they said that there's a lot of different factors that play into things. But overall, it it depends on, on the victim's race, social class, and kind of the, the how they live their lives, you know, so, so someone from an upscale neighborhood um, will, is more likely to get covered than someone who lives in a, in a poor neighborhood or has less money. Um, white, young female victims are also more likely to get news coverage. Were you surprised about that? Not particularly. Just being a reporter and having, you know, close tabs on the news, I, I can see what gets covered and what doesn't. And especially, you know, kind of the focus of my story is what, what gets picked up on a national level. Because mm. um, a lot of the cases do get at least some local coverage, um, you know, at least a story or two, uh, but almost none of them besides the case of Shanann Watts and Kelsey Barris received really any national attention. And we'll delve into that a bit more in a moment. But Doralee, as we said, you oversee a domestic, a Denver domestic violence group. Your review team has found at least 40 fatalities in Colorado last year, ones that involve some form of domestic violence. How did these numbers compare to previous years? You know, interesting you should ask that. I'm just looking at the research that we've done. And over the years, um, in 2017, there were 39 fatalities. Now, keep in mind, when we say fatalities, we're counting anything in the context of intimate partner abuse or domestic violence. Mm. So that's suicides, that's collateral deaths. So those numbers may look a little bit different than other criminal justice system statistics. But in 2016, there were 48 fatalities. 2015, there were 33. 2014, there were 37. And 2013, 42. And 2012, 42. So you can really see that it's a fairly consistent consistent number, unfortunately. Right. A few numbers up and down there. Was there one particular case that stood out for you, one that hadn't received the attention that perhaps it should have? Um, 
Well, that's really hard to say because we actually go, you know, we try and delve into all of the fatalities if possible. So I can't really say specifically. I mean, it's all a tragedy. And as Elise um, referenced, I think personally that it's a sort of a triumvirate of issues. It's definitely class, definitely race, and definitely gender. So if there's there's no other case that really jumps out at me except for all of them, if that makes any sense. And as Elise talked about, two recent Colorado cases have received this national attention. We have new details on a missing mother turned murder case. It is a crime that has shocked the nation. The Colorado in Colorado man. believe they found the bodies of a pregnant mother and her two young daughters. So, um, again, um, the murder of Shanann Watts, who was pregnant, and her two young daughters in Frederick, that was at the hands of husband and father Christopher Watts. He pleaded guilty in November and was sentenced to life without parole. And the disappearance of Kelsey, Kelsey Barrett uh, from Woodland Park. Her body has not been found, but her fiancé, Patrick Frazee, is charged with murder. He hasn't been convicted. In both cases, the victims were white and seemingly affluent. And Dorley, how much in this equation would you say race and economic status is a factor in why some cases get more media attention than others? Oh, I'd say 99% of the time that's a, those are factors, definitely, because um, it's, 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 this society lives on minimization and denial. So when you have a situation where um, someone like either, unfortunately, Shanann or Kelsey are killed, it's like it's a sort of a shock to the communities because it could happen to me, although I don't want to admit that it happens to me, but it could happen to me. Right. Isn't this equally true, though, uh, this race and affluence factor in other crime reporting, not just domestic violence? I believe it probably is. I'm not an expert as far as criminal justice statistics, but, you know, sort of a, a superficial analysis of it, I think that's absolutely true. Elise, as part of your reporting, you came across group chats about some of these domestic violence cases. What did you find? So in in the case of Shanann Watts and in Kelsey Barris, there are these massive online discussion groups. I've, the ones I found were mostly on Facebook. I'm sure they're on platforms across the Internet. Um, but just tens of thousands of people dissecting every fact and piece of evidence they can in the case um, across the country and across the world. And I had never seen that before in a case. Um, And I think that, you know, part of the issue we're talking about here is news coverage, right? But news coverage is in part driven by public interest. Um, You know, if if everyone in town is talking about the Shanann Watts case, and that's going to get a little bit more attention than something that no one seems to know about or talk about. You talk in your report or write in your report that media coverage and news consumers are largely white and economically advantaged, and they latch onto victims who are like them in a way to convince themselves that it could never, ever happen to them. But again, it seems to be a wake-up call that it could happen to them when they see something like Shanann Watts or Kelsey Barrett. Right, right. But I think particularly, I think with the Shanann Watts um, tragedy and the two little girls, um, possibly what played into that, too, the sensationalism, was the horrific details that happened and the fact that two little girls were also killed. That I mean, right. that probably just brought it to surface even more so. 
And Dora Lee, you point out that the impact of domestic violence fatalities is far-reaching. Uh, last year, at least seven children in Colorado witnessed or were in the home when someone died. Correct. Yeah. Talk a little bit about that. Correct. Well, I mean, it's it's hard to minimize the impact that this these issues or these situations have on kids because we've not really done a long-term analysis of what happens to them as they grow up. But, I mean, the trauma that they must experience is just almost beyond comprehension. But I think, again, society sort of minimizes that. It's like, okay, get over it. But but the collateral impact that domestic abuse has on people, I say this when I do public speaking, if you don't think you're affected by domestic violence, you could be dead wrong. Mm. And that's absolutely the truth because there's collateral deaths, Law enforcement, um, not nearly as much as we used to believe, but it still impacts law enforcement and, and first responders. So it's, it's so important that society see the bigger picture. One of your missions is to identify if someone used an intervention program to prevent violence and to review if that process worked. Uh, talk about that. Correct. Well, it's not a, um, what we basically do when we actually do a review is look at the case and then after we're finished, the entire collaborative group looks at interventions that were used and interventions that were missed. And those interventions could run, run the gamut from um, t- telling friends or, or coworkers, law enforcement intervention, um, support systems, that sort of thing. But we don't really see when there is a fatality of those cases that were reviewed, we don't really see a lot of interventions used, unfortunately. Thank you both for joining us. Of course. Elise Schmelzer reported for the Denver Post about the disparity in media coverage, especially national coverage, when it comes to domestic violence fatalities. Doralee Larson is the executive director of the Denver Domestic Violence Coordinating Council, which tracks cases and works towards solutions. The federal government shutdown has ended for now, but negotiations around border security and the idea of a border wall continue. We wanted to get some personal perspective from someone who's been there and worked with people who've crossed the border. Sister Evangeline Salazar is a nun at the Bennett Hill Monastery in Colorado Springs. She worked as a translator near the El Paso Juarez border. It was at a shelter that houses migrants seeking asylum in the U.S. These are people who've recently been released from detention centers. And Evangeline, welcome to the show. Thank you. You volunteered twice at this particular shelter called Annunciation House. That was once in November and again for much of December through early January. The shelter collaborates with ICE to help these migrants, and it provides things like housing, food, and clothing until refugees can connect with sponsors. Why did you choose to go? Well, I chose to go because I um, I believe in the um, call from Jesus Christ that says we need to work with the poor, the hungry, and the oppressed. And we had a call from the um, leader, le- leadership um, of women religious because they needed some volunteers. And so they called and asked if some nuns could come and help out. And so when I got the invitation, I said, sure, I'll come. And so I worked it out with my prioress, and I arrived in El Paso. Describe what a typical day was like for you when you were there. 
Well, the, um, earlier you said we work in collaboration with ICE. We don't really work with ICE. We're independent of ICE. The thing is that they tell us when the um, detainees are going to be released out into the street. So that's the connection you have with ICE. That's the connection. And so once they tell us that they're coming out, we uh, send buses or cars or or uh, vans to pick up the um, the refugees, and we bring them to our center. Uh, we're uh, one of ten centers that are run by a Annunciation House. I've worked at two centers. Uh, the one I worked the most in was called um, Nazareth. Mm-hmm. So once the uh, refugees arrive and get out of the buses, we uh, take them in, we welcome them, we um, welcome them like guests, and then we um, we take down their name and address and who their sponsors are, and um, and we give assign them bedrooms, beds mm. actually, because sometimes we have two families to a to a room. Right. Then we. Um, after that process, then we allow them to pick out a new outfit of clothing mm. because they come with only what they have on their backs. And who knows how long they've been with those clothes because they've been months maybe in the detention center and walking to the to the border. What's the general state of mind of these migrants when they come to you? Uh, they're all weary, tired, and... Um, they have a lot of faith and a lot of hope. So sometimes they're they're sick from colds and stomach aches and that sort of thing. And um, the ones that I worked with, the ones that arrived at our place, are mostly a parent with a child, a mother with a fa- a, a mother with a daughter or, or son, a father with a not a whole family unit, just father mother with with children. Are there stories about the migrants that really stand out for you? You know what? Everybody has a story, and every story is very sad. They've all come uh, from suffering, great suffering. They've been violated. They've been oppressed. They're, They're running away from violence. Their homes have been threatened. Their jobs were threatened. And so... They've got the American dream. They they they're they're full of hope. They think that once they get to the United States, they're going to be able to have some freedom and and live a life. You uh, talked about a man who wore plastic bags on his feet for shoes. Talk about that. Well, this happened one day. Um, when they come in, we we provide clothing for them. Sometimes we don't have anything to give them. Um, we depend a lot on donations. Uh, well, we depend always on donations, and sometimes uh, we get a lot of used shoes. Sometimes we get new shoes, but uh, we didn't have any at this at this point. And so I noticed this man uh, had plastic bags over his feet, and we do tell him when they first come in that they have to wear their shoes because we don't want them walking around barefooted. Well, anyway, he had plastics, plastic bags for his shoes, and I asked him why he was shoeless, actually. And he said, well, my son wore out his shoes, so I gave him my shoes. Mm. And I felt so badly, I was ready to take my shoes off 
and oh. give them to him because it looked like maybe we wore the same size. But, you know, it was really hard because I only had two pairs of shoes with me in, in El Paso, and I didn't know whether I really wanted to give. It was a struggle between myself and my conscience and, and what do I do. But anyway, I went to the house where I live, which is next door to the center, and I picked up my sandals because I thought I'd give him my shoes and I could uh, use my sandals. But just before I took my shoes off, I thought, mm, I want to check that shoe room again. And sure enough, I found a pair of shoes that fit the boy. And so um, the father was able to get his shoes from the son and um, had to care of that. So there was an angel there somewhere. <laughs> You kept a 14-day journal with some of these stories. It was one for each day of the Stations of the Cross. And you put the entries in a letter that you sent to your community. And um, you write about a boy you met. And I'd like uh, you to read a bit from day six. Yesterday, I sat with the father of a three-year-old child. I felt a small hand rubbing the side of my face. I looked up, smiled at the boy, and smiling back at me, he said, Crusty, in Spanish. I could not take my eyes off of him. I was so taken up by this small gesture of love. Imagine a three-year-old noticing a crust on the side of your face, reaching out his small hand to wipe it away. I was moved to tears. As I held the child in my arms, my thoughts turned to Veronica, wiping the face of Jesus on the way to Calvary. What did that small gesture mean to the Son of God? Walking slowly on a dirty, dusty road, his face sweaty, dirty, and itching, and along comes a young woman risking her life to wipe the face of Jesus. Today was one of those days. The people arrived dirty, smelly, hungry, and needing to go to the bathroom. We waited for them and gave them what little we had, a clean washcloth to wipe their faces and hands it's amazing how a clean, cool washcloth can lift the dirt from their faces, can lift the spirit of the tired and the weary. What have you taken away from these visits to the border? I've taken away. My faith has increased. I look at these people with absolutely nothing Nothing but their faith and their hope in a God and a country and a people that will give them the opportunity that they need to lift themselves to a better life. It just, my heart just goes out to them. I cry a lot mm -hmm. because of the sadness and the suffering that they've come through and their stories. And, but my faith has increased. I believe that this is the call from God for all of us, all of us in this country, to be hospitable and welcoming. 
Aren't they taking really serious risks by coming here knowing they might be separated from their children during processing? Yes. They take all, all kinds of risks, actually. That's, that's the hardest one. And really, we had never heard about separation from their children and, and their, separating the children from the parents until we had that crisis. And we all protested, of course. We all can remember that. But they have enough faith that that won't happen. That won't happen again. And so they take whatever risks they have to take. It's a risk just walking from one country across Mexico to try to reach uh, the United States. And then the risk of just waiting in Juarez before they're allowed to come into the United States for the for the process. What do you want folks who haven't had any experience at the border to understand what it's like there? You know what? I said to my community when I came back, I wish that all of you could be there just to see, just to touch the skin of the poor. We talk a lot in this country about the poor, helping the poor, doing this for the poor. But how many of us really touch the lives of the poor? How many of us can look into their eyes and, and not say, I'm so sorry for you, but just to look into their eyes and see the Christ child there? Evangeline, thanks so much for being here. You're welcome. Sister Evangeline Salazar has been a nun for 60 years. She's based at the Bennett Hill Monastery in Colorado Springs. She volunteered at the El Paso Juarez border with Annunciation House. It's a shelter that houses migrants seeking asylum in the U.S. once they've been released from detention centers. John Hickenlooper says he plans on visiting all 99 counties in Iowa as he considers a presidential run. On Sunday, he crossed Polk County off his list. So I want to thank Neil and Deb and and all of you for coming out on such a cold and, and, and wintry afternoon. Iowa is considered a key state for candidates because it's where the first presidential caucus is held. CPR News producer Anthony Cotton was in Iowa with Hickenlooper. He joins us now. Hi, Anthony. Hello, Andrea Dukakis. How are you? I'm fine. How's Iowa? Iowa is pretty cold, although I guess not as bad as Colorado is today. (laughs) We've got some snow. The former Colorado governor did not announce his candidacy last night, but in many ways he acted a lot like a candidate. Yeah, I think it's all over but the shouting with regards to to him announcing formally. Uh, It was it looked like it was a candidate outing last night. It was at the home of, of Neil and, and Deborah Salowitz. They're a couple of old friends with Hickenlooper. They attended college together out east. And really, a lot of the people there last night, there were more than 100 people. They said they showed up merely because Rick and Deb, I'm sorry, Neil and Deb were, were backing Hickenlooper. And so it was at least worth it for them to come out and hear what he had to say. And what did he have to say? 
Well, he spoke for about 20 minutes, and he answered questions for another 20 minutes. And so just like when he spoke at the U.S. Conference of Mayors in Washington, D.C. that last week, he spent most of that time touting his achievements uh, during his two terms as governor in Colorado and claiming what happened in Colorado during his tenure could be a beacon for the rest of the country. And he also told the crowd that wasn't the only reason why he should be the Democratic nominee. I've got interested in running for president because, like you, I am not just frustrated, but I am agonized. I am over-the-top angry about what's happened to our country in such a short period of time. And I look at it, and there's a bunch of my friends running for president, uh, a lot of people I know pretty well. I don't think there's anyone else that can reliably, as I can, beat Donald Trump. And perhaps fittingly, Hickenlooper went out after the house party to a brewery. Indeed, he poured drinks for customers. He had an IPA and a brown ale. And there was a pretty big crowd there as well. He spent a lot of time visiting tables and, and chatting up the customers. How long will you be in town? Uh, just for a day and a half you know, today, and I'll leave tomorrow. Uh, but I think I'm going to come back. I, you know, my plan is to go over the whole state, right? I'm going to go to all 99 counties. I, How many days will you take him to every county in Iowa? It depends on how I go. One of my friends out there, I got this old Republican. He's so, you know, he likes what we've done. He restored his 1978 John Deere 4020. Yeah. And he wants me to drive to every county in the in that tractor. In that case, it's going to take me about three months. There was a, a political official there, a guy who ran for Secretary of State a few years ago, and he told me that when Barack Obama was up for re-election in 2012, he came to Iowa 35 times wow. before the caucuses. But then he said that might not be enough this for during this election cycle, that the candidates will have to come even more than that. Uh, but the brewery and the House Party kind of captured what it's all about here, the idea that candidates have to come in and prove themselves to the people, not only on the issues, but also they have to win them over with their personality, personalities. And Neil Salowitz, uh, Hickenlooper's friend who hosted the party, said that that combination is crucial. It really is a way for Iowans to vet candidates. And I think, I think the real benefit of the Iowa caucuses is that it does just that. If you are first, second, or third, you know, you have a ticket out of here to, to New Hampshire and South Carolina. If you don't, then maybe your candidacy is over. It's a matter of meeting people in people's living rooms and in church basements and in coffee shops uh, all across Iowa, um, not only just in the Des Moines area, but in the rural areas as well. Candidates who do well here spend a lot of time traveling around and meeting Iowans, not just in the big cities. Now, Hickenlooper isn't the only potential candidate in town, right? No, and... You know, he's leaving Des Moines, and he might literally bump into California Senator Kamala Harris. She's hosting a town hall tonight at Drake University. The venue where that's going to be held is, a, is about a block away from the Drake Diner. And that's a local hotspot where candidates will often drop in to shoot the breeze while they're ramping up for the caucuses. That wasn't on Hickenlooper's itinerary this time around, but I went there Sunday morning just to get a sense if he carried any name recognition with the people there. 
Uh, Neil Salowitz said Iowans are pretty educated when it comes to presidential politics, and it was really a very, very small sample size of people that I spoke with there, but almost everyone knew that Hickenlooper was a former Denver mayor and Colorado governor. But even so, I think it's safe to say that the candidates and or maybe at least the reporters covering the candidates had better be on their toes. People are starting to come into town. Yeah. How familiar are you with any of the Democratic candidates? Not very, not very, I'm not at all. I'm a Republican, I don't really care. Yeah. I, I just no. know they're women, that's about it. Yeah. And one man. Yeah. yeah. So, the name John Hickenlooper. No, I have, don't know how John Hickenlooper. I know I know of Ben Hickenlooper. Um, he owned a pizza place down on Center Street. And we had the Hickenlooper pizza all the time. Are you pulling my... No, I am. I am. So... Uh, sounds like Hickenlooper still has a bit of a way to go with name recognition. Yeah, a little bit, or, or at least with, with that group. And, and it was interesting that, again, very small sample size, but, but people knew him, and I, most of the people were Democrats there. Um, remind us when Hickenlooper might announce his candidacy, one way or the, another. Well, he says it will be at the end of February or, or, or early March. Again, I, I think he's, it's clear that he's going to run. He says that his wife, Robin, is on board. In fact, he says she's living vicariously through his, his meandering and wandering, wandering around across the country. So I, I think he's definitely going to run. And like I said, the announcement, late February, early March. Thanks, Anthony. You're welcome. Former Colorado Governor John Hickenlooper was in Iowa Sunday as he explores a run for president in 2020. CPR's news producer Anthony Cotton joined him there. He'll continue to monitor Hickenlooper's next moves in a potential run for the White House. Colorado will need to do more than just cut opioid prescriptions to end the state's opioid epidemic. That's according to a new analysis from the American Medical Association. CPR health reporter John Daly breaks down the findings. Colorado is just one of four states the AMA decided to spotlight with a deep-dive look at what it'll take to stop the state's opioid epidemic. In 2013, then-Governor John Hickenlooper launched a process to develop one of the first statewide comprehensive efforts in the country. Dr. Jonathan Clapp is a pain specialist and has worked with the Colorado Medical Society on the effort. He says Colorado has become a national leader. With really being thoughtful as far as not ignoring patients that are in pain, but also uh, trying to keep patients as safe as possible and uh, trying to find other alternatives to these dangerous opioids that we've been using. The report credits the state in several areas. Colorado adopted policies and funding to help more people get access to medication-assisted treatment. It pushed for insurers to cover treatment and non-opioid alternatives for pain management. And Clapp says... It expanded access to the overdose reversal drug, naloxone. This has made a difference. I mean, I saw a number that it's just an estimate that that already the naloxone has saved thousands of lives uh, in Colorado. And I, I don't think that that's an understatement. But despite all that, the grim toll of the epidemic continues. There's been a 21 percent drop in opioid prescriptions since 2013. But the state's death rate from overdoses continued to rise over the last two years. The AMA report urges Colorado to do more. 
Clapp says it starts with eliminating barriers to treatment. That includes encouraging both private and public insurers to do more to cover drug addiction or behavioral treatment. When someone comes in and wants to uh, get treatment, medication-assisted treatment, they want off the opioids, they want to get better, there are still many payers out there that will not cover their treatment. The report says Colorado needs to expand access to providers of medication-assisted treatment, especially in rural areas. That's the use of FDA-approved meds like methadone, naltrexone, and buprenorphine alongside counseling. Meantime, the epidemic continues. More than a 1,000 Coloradans lost their lives to drug overdoses in 2017. It was a new record. I'm John Daly, CPR News. How often do you think back to your childhood and wonder, whatever happened to this or that? That's the origin of our next Colorado Wonder Story. It's about a replica of a train that used to loom above the Colorado River. CPR's Western Slope reporter Stina Sieg tracks it down. Since moving to Grand Junction two years ago, 72-year-old Bob Seedroff has driven through Glenwood Canyon's dramatic rock walls a lot. Every time I ask my wife, whatever happened to that little train pedestal that was at the entrance to the canyon? His wife Kathy doesn't know. She doesn't even remember it. I guess I'm the only one that remembers seeing it there or seeing it missing also. (laughs) But when he passed where it used to be, he'd point out the spot to his kids, too. They'd always probably think I was crazy. When he was a kid, that small train meant his family was getting close to Glenwood Springs, where he and his brother would play in the famous pool while their dad fished nearby. But Seedroff hasn't seen that train in decades. I was afraid somebody had stolen the thing, you know, some vandals had come along and ripped it apart. I told him I'd try to find out. You're an investigative reporter. (laughs) Only the hard-hitting stories. (laughs) So, I'm gonna, I was just getting ready to pull these photographs for you. At the Glenwood Springs Frontier Historical Museum, board member Sharon Holler uses white gloves to cradle a picture of a small silver train, maybe 10 feet long, mounted on two rock pillars right next to the Colorado River. Below it, a bench and a smiling woman in heels and a 1950s skirt. Holler says she doesn't know exactly why this was installed. Then her friend Barry Dunstan walks in. Maybe you know. Why they did that in the first place? Yeah. Uh, Yes, uh, that was so that they could advertise the California Zephyr. And specifically, the train line's viewing car. It turns out the very idea for the car was born right in Glenwood Canyon, when a GM executive was riding through on a freight train in 1944. He was so taken by the canyon's beauty that he wanted to give passengers an unobstructed view. The Vista Dome viewing cars started running in 1949. The monument was erected a year later. Dunstan, who's now 70 and grew up in Glenwood, says it was a well-known landmark for his family. We had picnics under it all the time. Dunstan talks about the monument so much that his wife bought him a painting of it a few years ago. He doesn't remember the little train car being installed, but definitely remembers how sad he was when it was gone. Everybody was, I think, yeah. That was sometime in the early 80s. I was driving through the canyon every day, and all of a sudden it just disappeared. 
But it wasn't stolen or destroyed. It was saved from target practice. Uh, The car had been subject to target practice by passing, uh, by hazarding motorists. Charles Albee helped save it. He's a former executive director of the Colorado Railroad Museum in Golden. He says after the monument was shot at, it was moved into storage. And after the highway through the canyon was widened, there was no place left for it. So it was donated to the museum, where it still captures people's attention today. It's one of our major attractions there, yes. Especially for those who remember it from the canyon. Back when the road was so low, the river would sometimes lap at cars' tires. People like Bob Seedroff, who'd never seen a photo of the train car before. That's it. (laughs) Yeah, that's it. You found it. And it's on display seven days a week. Next time we go to town, I would glad to go see it. Wouldn't that be a trip? And something for the Christmas letter, says his wife. In Grand Junction, I'm Stina Sieg, CPR News. See photos of the train car at CPR.org. And what do you wonder about Colorado? Share your question at coloradowonders at CPR.org. Now we take a stroll down the yellow brick road with Dorothy, her dog Toto, the Tin Man, Cowardly Lion, and the Scarecrow. Those beloved characters are reimagined on stage this coming weekend. That's when the Colorado Ballet presents The Wizard of Oz at Denver's Ellie Hawkins Opera House. It's a world premiere co-commissioned by three ballet companies. Septim Weber choreographed the production, and Septim, welcome to the show. Thanks so much. Great to be here. I understand you proposed this to the Colorado Ballet several years ago when the company performed your Alice in Wonderland. What did you like about the idea of a Wizard of Oz ballet? Uh, in some ways, this ballet has been incubating since I was 12 years old. Mm. I come from a, a huge family. There were eight brothers and a sister. And we grew up in the Bahamas until I was about 12. And there was really nothing to do but play on the beach and read books. We had no television and, uh, on that island. And the books fascinated me and my brothers. And uh, at age 12, we moved to South Texas. And on a trip to Mexico, we bought uh, a whole slew of 99-cent marionettes from Mexico. One bandito, one drunk guy, one sexy girl kind of thing. And uh, we spent a summer recostuming them, building a puppet house, painting five backdrops, and put together this outrageously spectacular, for a 12-year-old kid, uh, version, touring version of The Wizard of Oz uh, that was 30 minutes long and toured to nursing homes and church basements. <laughs> so it's been, it's been kicking around for a long time. We'll There's talk about the puppets that you have in, in your show in a moment, but the Wizard of Oz book is in the public domain, but the 1939 film starring Judy Garland is not. In certain ways, the film varies from the book. In the original novel, Dorothy has silver slippers. In the film, of course, they're ruby slippers. And in your ballet, Dorothy dances in ruby-colored slippers as well. How did you decide how much of the film to use versus the book? Uh, Well, we went into it uh, wanting to uh, make a a work of art that stood on its own uh, that that would be encoded 
with the DNA of the book and some elements of the film that are so iconic. But uh, I always have felt when an artist tackles uh, kind of remake of a, a great work of, of art, the only reason to do it is to add something, to bring something, some new facet. Uh, what we did, the three companies um, did, was license select elements of the intellectual property from Warner Brothers from the film, and we chose just about four or five things. The ruby slippers are just iconic, and the color red is so strong on stage. That was a, that was a, a no-brainer. Uh, but also, the film has a really wonderful prequel, like a prologue in Kansas, uh, where we learn a lot more about Dorothy's life. That doesn't appear in the book. The book's Kansas scene is very slim. And so uh, I really wanted that backstory to be present. So that's another way in which the the um, the, the, the ballet pay, pays homage to and follows the kind of libretto presented by the film. What was it like to have to get permission from a group like Warner Brothers? Uh, wonderfully, I'm the choreographer in the studio, and some guys in suits had to do that. Uh-huh. <laughs> uh, but I think it was uh, actually there was a really good team of producers. The the directors of all three ballet companies, uh, particularly the executive directors, uh, had sort of Stanley weekly meetings for about a year. And uh, and I think the there probably been a lot of requests, but this was an unusual one with a particularly strong vision about what the ballet might be like. And Warner Brothers was intrigued and and supportive. The ballet has an original score composed by Matthew Pierce. chose to present one of the more aggressive passages. (laughs) (laughs) Um, There are also some elaborate puppets in the show made by Nicholas Mahone. That includes flying monkeys and Dorothy's dog Toto. Some of the performers will also fly in the show. And I wonder how you create the tornado on stage. Uh, The tornado, there are sort of two elements or three elements to it. there are video projections. We have a beautiful projection artist who, uh, who's quite well-known, Aaron Ryan, who designed the, the video projections for the whole show. And there is a projection element in the back, but I really wanted there to be a kind of wonderful, uh, not exactly homemade element, but three-dimensional, but not trying to hide the puppeteering. So Alice is actually flying in the middle of the... Uh, in the the middle of the air, essentially. It's like we're looking down into a tornado. So the tornado, it's like you're you're looking into a funnel cloud. You don't see it vertically, but you see it from above. And these wonderful puppets of of things flying by. Uh, There's the cows and uh, 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 jalopy. A lot of really fun things that sort of from the cans that fly by. Uh, they're puppeted by dancers below, and we use these kind of gray beige silks that that swirl, that create a kind of funnel cloud. So it's uh, it's all these elements together that create a kind of chaos, and you actually see the the the, the flying stuff in the air. And yes, Miss Gulch does fly by in her bike. <laughs> it sounds like an incredible amount of spectacle. I also understand some aspects of the ballet are drawn from pop culture. How do these show up? Uh, just usually out of serendipity. 
Um, Matthew Pierce, the composer, and I have worked on four or five ballets together. In fact, he designed, he uh, created the, the score for Alice in Wonderland. He's a contemporary classical composer and composes on the violin. I'm a classical music person, but also a pop culture person. And as we go, it usually takes about six months to write the score, and we'll suggest things. You know, we we are working on the Emerald City, and we I first I, I love early music, and I sent him some stuff by Purcell and other things like that. And he wrote some fanfares, and they just sounded flat. And at the time, our set designer was working on concepts, and he called me one night and said, how about we envision the Emerald City inside a disco ball? Wow. I thought, oh, my God, that's, that's perfect. So I quickly uh, sent a YouTube link of the disco song Disco Inferno uh-huh. to Matthew Pierce and said, listen, this is the inspiration for the Emerald City. So it's this crazy, hysterical string. Uh, it's like a huge string orchestra playing a some disco funk. With a, with a little bit of funk in there. So there's all, as a matter of fact, the, the aggressive piece you played a moment ago um, was, it's it's actually the witch, Wicked Witch and the Winkies. Mm-hmm. And I told, when I, I moved to New York in the early 90s, and I used to, I was a club kid, and used to go to the Sound Factory Bar at 3 in the morning to DJ Junior Vasquez. And I was like, all right, it's going to be like Junior Vasquez at 4 in the morning, Sound Factory Bar, when the like the bass falls out. Right. <laughs> and, uh, and so he, he kind of chuckled and said, all right, I'll see what I can do. <laughs> so, so it's got a classical context, but, but some, some uh, great pop sidebar references. This is a co-commission, as we said, between three professional ballet companies. Kansas City Ballet performed it last fall. Colorado Ballet's premiere, as we said, is this weekend. And the Royal Winnipeg Ballet in Canada will dance it in May. The companies created an LLC incorporated in Colorado in order to present the work together. Here's Colorado Ballet's managing director, Mark Chase. We wanted to create a legal construct so there'd be a single entity that dealt with, for example, each of the designers. We also all made contributions to this LLC, and then the LLC would actually distribute funds to, for example, vendor who is making sets or costumes or one of the designers, et cetera. So just briefly, these are the business logistics, but on the artistic side, how do you create a ballet from scratch and tailor it to three different dance companies? Well, it was really important for me that the the DNA of each company be left in the in the ballet. Everyone leave their fingerprint. Um, and I, as a choreographer, am really influenced by the dancers I'm actually creating on. So we put together a unique model. Um, actually, a year and a half ago, I came to Denver for two weeks and workshopped the first half of the first act on the dancers of Colorado Ballet. So I really created all of Kansas and much of Munchkinland on them. About four months later, I went for two weeks to Winnipeg. Sadly, it was January and minus 14 (laughs) uh, and created, you know, the poppies and some of Emerald City. And I went to Kansas City and created uh, the rest of the ballet. And then I adapted the whole thing to the Kansas City Ballet dancers. So um, so essentially all three companies, dancers influenced different sections. Um, and then uh, created in Kansas City, then it's adapted then uh, here to the set on the Colorado Valley dancers, and I do further revisions and adapt steps to suit the dancers here uh, and their special energies. So uh, the idea for me is not that each company dances identically, but that the idea be present and very strong, and each one uh, illuminate different facets 
of mm. each of the characters. Thanks so much for joining us. It's been a pleasure. Septim Weber directs the Hong Kong Ballet and choreographed The Wizard of Oz. Colorado Ballet opens the new ballet this weekend. It was a co-commission between the Colorado Ballet, Kansas City Ballet, and Canada's Royal Winnipeg Ballet. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News.